This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is part two of our summer study on Proverbs. Today we're going to talk about our understanding, our need for wisdom. And, you know, I came out to, to drive to church this morning. I noticed that the lawn has to be mown. How could that happen? But, you know, it reminds me, when I mow the lawn, something happens. Is periodically I run across bees in my yard. And it always reminds me of the story that they used to tell the old folks in my family about my dad about 90 years ago. Uh, he's in a small rural town. And as the story goes, when he was a little boy, he actually stepped into a beehive, in a, a bee's nest, and he got covered with bee stings. What attracted me about that story, what interested me, is what happened next. He ran home with his friends, and my grandmother wrapped him up, and where do you go when you have bee stings? She ran down to the swamp, which is just a few hundred yards away, and covered him with swamp mud. See, that's the folk remedy that people have for bee stings, is, is swamp mud. Didn't know that, did you? Okay. <laughs> and what always intrigued me about that story was, who would ever get that idea? I mean, where do ideas like that come from? Really, swamp mud for bee, well, and so, of course, if you think about it, it's pretty obvious where people come up with these ideas because everybody wants to feel good, right, in our health. No one wants to feel pain. And even if you don't have an abstract interest in medicine, the fact is, as a practical matter, we have to deal with injuries and illnesses in our life, don't we? Everybody. Ancient peoples, modern people, mod you know, a modern city, a way in the, somewhere in Borneo, everybody has to deal with the issues. So basically the same problem we face when it comes to how do we live happy lives. Everybody desires happiness, right? Sort of funny, we just finished the 4th of July, our celebrations. And remember the Declaration of Independence talks about the pursuit of happiness as being one of the three great inalienable rights. So everybody wants happiness, yet we're in a world, I don't have to tell you, where ha being happy is not automatic. There are a lot of spiritual and emotional equivalents to bee stings, aren't there, out there that are getting in the way of that. So, again, even if we have no abstract interest in philosophy, we always are on the lookout for what are things that might make us happy. We're on the lookout for that. If you had any doubts, just go to a bookstore and look at the self-help section or turn on daytime TV or something. People are interested in the subject. So the problem, of course, whether it be how do, what do we deal with injuries and things or how to be the happy is, how do you find stuff that works? You know, that's really the problem. How do you find stuff that actually works? And that's exactly what the reading from the book of Proverbs talks about today. So how do we go about doing that? Now, since I started out by talking about folk medicine, let's use that as an analogy. Now, as I just noted, every people from all times through thousands of years have had to deal with, from the very beginning, what do we do when people get sick? What do we do when people get injured? What do you do? And basically, people have taken three different techniques for dealing with it. The first is, what seems to work? That's experience. Right? People simply draw on experience. What seems to work? For example, uh, the ancient Egyptians, we have a papyrus 3,500 years old from Egypt that tells us, what do you do when you feel pain? Oh, you know this. Willow bark tea. That willow bark tea relieves pain. And if you aren't reading many Egyptian papyri these days, you could just go to Hippocrates, right, with the Hippocratic Oath the doctors still swear to. Hippocrates told us, uh, let's see, 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago, that when women are delivering children, they want to basically chew on willow bark because it relieves pain. So it was sort of empirical, right? They said, hey, this seems to work. Another thing is, what do you do if you have scurvy? For example, 
Uh, when the French explorers came, Jacques Cartier in, uh, in 1536, when he came into the Saint Gulf of St. Lawrence, his crew had scurvy. It often happened when you cross the Atlantic. And happily, the, the native population said, no problem. They simply made cedar bark tea. And that took care of the problem of scurvy. It seemed to work. Okay, so we have something like that. But there's, so one thing was do, we looked at things that seemed to work. Another approach people took is intuition. Things that seem to make sense, it ought to work. A classic example of this was bloodletting. For over 2,500 years, people have taken sick people and have let their blood, you know, have taken, taken blood away from them. It seemed like a good idea. Okay, and then it's intuition. Okay. Another is simply wishful thinking. You know, gee, wouldn't it be this great if this did work? So how do you know, like, what illness does somebody have? Or what's going to happen with the illness? Well, you cast a horoscope, of course. Ask an ancient Roman. Okay. So people took different. They took a look at their experience. They looked at intuition. What do I think ought to work? Or are they just basically just pure wishful thinking? Boy, would this be great if it did work. Three different approaches. But the, as a practical matter, what happens is some things actually did work. Now, we know, for example, that willow bark does relieve pain. That's a fact. And we also know that uh, cedar needles do, in fact, cure scurvy. It's true. Now, horoscopes don't have quite that track record. <laughs> You're not going to find anything out from a horoscope about where what your disease is or what's going to happen that's going to mean anything. And we know that bloodletting, the only thing bloodletting has ever cured is overpopulation. Okay. <laughs> so the real question we have to ask ourselves, okay, how come some things work and other things don't? Here's what we know. From a modern viewpoint, we look at back and say it's simple. There are basically based certain underlying facts of human health, aren't there? Physiology, microbiology, right? Uh, um, uh, we talk about biochemistry. There are certain facts about human health. They're facts, whether we know them or not. And any medical treatment we come up with is going to bump up against those facts, and the facts are going to win. Doesn't matter our good intentions, how hard we tried, how smart the ideas seem, they're going to bump up against the simple facts of this is biology, this is how the body actually works. Okay, so a medical treatment only works to the extent that it conforms to those facts. So why does willow bark actually work to relieve pain? Because it has aspirin in it. You know, it basically, you know, relieves inflammation. Willow bark contains aspirin. What about cedar needles for scurvy? Well, Remember this next time you cross the ocean, okay, <laughs> you know, on a, on a wooden ship. Okay, it's basically scurvy is just a lack of vitamin C. Well, cedar needles have vitamin C. Who knew? Okay, well, the natives did. Okay. Now, what about bloodletting? Well, there's no such thing as having too much blood. Well, there's a very, very rare condition. Most of us don't have just enough, and certainly when we're sick, can't afford to lose any. So that's why bloodletting doesn't work. And what about horoscopes and telling our medical future? Well, there's just no connection between the stars and our health. So the basic point is there's simply no way around the cold, hard facts of biology. If you're going to do medicine, those are, those are the facts. Okay, good intentions are no substitute. Well, we're almost as human beings in the same situation when it comes to happiness. You know, our, our achieving happiness. People always have desired to achieve their personal happiness, but left to their own desires, we pretty much do the same thing we did for medicine. Always have. Right? Two, three different approaches. One approach is, hey, what seems to work? Isn't this a story of like all those self-help books about success stories? This worked for me, maybe it'll work for you. Okay. 
Another approach is it's, it seems like it should work. Okay, uh, that's intuition. We have examples of all people, for example, setting the goal of self-actualization will make me happy. That's it. You know, that seems to make sense. I'll work at being self-actualized. That should make me happy. Or sometimes, the, the, hey, who knows? Maybe this could work. This is where get, things get wishful thinking. Like, you know, I'm not bound by any actual physical facts. I can be whatever I want to be. I can define myself. I can create a personal narrative irrespective of fact and make it happen. Now, we can see looking at the world around us that the results of this three-pronged approach have been mixed, haven't they, say the, say the, say the, say the least. The book of Proverbs, a few chapters later, says, you know, there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. We've all seen that. Things that really seem like good ideas, but later on we find out, boy, this didn't work out very much. So, why is that so? And we have the answer today in the book of Proverbs. It says, you know, just as there are biological facts, they just are what they are. There's no use going against them. They're there. They're not moving. They're saying they're actually facts about our happiness that are in nature. There are underlying facts of human happiness that are real and immovable. This is a medical science. Why? Because we're told, remember it talks about creation, it says that the, they're part of the, the Creator Himself put them into creation. You know, God created the world the way it is. We see the reflection of Him in the creation. That's just how it is. If we go against that, we're not going to be happy. They're facts that we, we, we uh, butt up against. So our, ultimately, our happiness depends on how we align ourselves with those spiritual facts of who human beings are. Facts created by God. And the Bible describes this process of aligning our life, making decisions based on those facts. They're called wisdom, obtaining wisdom. Now, how do we actually go about doing that? And how do we actually align ourselves with that? And the, and the book of Proverbs tells us, the very next chapter after we read today tells us. And let me give you a little background for this. In the, in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew scriptures, the word fear, you like to be afraid. The word fear often means not just be afraid, but it can mean to have a really healthy respect, an awe for something. You know, fear looks a healthy awe, healthy respect. It reminds me of my dad, is my dad could do everything around the house. He could do carpentry, he could do plumbing, he could do electricity. Now, as my dad pointed out to me numerous times, it seems to have skipped a generation, but we'll leave that. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, he really was clever with this stuff. But one thing I remember about dad with electricity and stuff, electric projects, he said, you never trifle with electricity. You know, you don't take it, you, you double check, you know, electricity is merciless that way, you know. He wasn't frightened of it, but he had a healthy respect. Electricity is something you don't trifle with. You're careful with it. And so the idea when we're talking, the book of Proverbs says, what's, it says, what's the beginning of wisdom? It says, fear of the Lord. And awe, respect for God is the beginning of wisdom. A healthy respect for God. Okay, it's the first step on the road to wisdom. And what does it mean to have a fear of the Lord? What's all of God mean is we understand that God is a point of reference. He is the point of reference for living. That is the point of reference. Now, once we do that, if we actually look at God as our ultimate point of reference, everything changes in how we view the world. The first thing that happens is we grow up emotionally. Here's what I mean by that. Is, you know, we just had our, our first grandson. Uh, you're saying, well, much too young, but we'll work about that. Okay, it's a medical miracle. Okay, we've, had, we've had our, just had our first grandson. And one thing about kids that are just born is that one of the first challenges of a human being is to realize where do I end and the world begins. You know, how come I can move this, but I can't move that by just thinking about it? To find out, you know, the world and I are not the same thing. 
there's something beyond me. Well, there's sort of a spiritual factor to that as well. I'm not, not only is there a world beyond me, but I'm not the center of the universe. The fact is, there is a center which is God, and everything is aligned to Him, not to us. There's something beyond me, and things align to God. This changes everything. This makes it possible to relate meaningfully with other people. Because think about it. You know, we talk about human dignity. You know, the word dignity comes from a lot of word genius. You know what that means? We translate often in English the word worthy. You know, where does the word worthy come from? The word worth, like money, value, and worth. Okay, that's the word dignity, human dignity, worth. Well, I've got to tell you, worth is a relative term, isn't it? When I say something is worth something, it depends who the person is. You know, a basketball might be of great worth or value to Father Kevin or Father Brett. It's not for me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all relative. Worth is relative. Value is relative. So when we say there's human dignity, what's the point of comparison? Where, where does that come from? If I am the point of reference, if I live in a world without God, that point of reference inevitably will be me. People are only valuable to the extent that they basically move my agenda. So we suddenly find out that, gee, people like family and friends are really valuable, right? They have a lot of dignity. People that um, I'm acquainted with, we would say, have some value. People that I don't know have little or no value, and people, my enemies, have negative value. We can do this as a society, as individuals. We value other people uniquely. Their value comes from, what use are they to me? I become the point of reference. When we have God as the point of reference, suddenly, and this, by the way, is why we have the secular culture around us of abortion and euthanasia. Yeah, there's just no value to people get in the way. <laughs> right? They, they, they've lost their value. They're not life no longer worthy of life. You know, the kind of thing. They're, they're just getting in the way. So, with God, it's completely different. Suddenly, we realize people's value has nothing to do with how they help my life go along. They have a value that comes from their direct relationship with God. You know, the founding fathers of this country had huge wisdom in the Declaration of Independence where they, they pointed this fact out. They said, you know, in the, in the Declaration of Independence, they said, you know, when we're talking about human rights, human dignity, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Because without God, human rights are a social convention. And believe me, they change with convenience. If somebody were told, you know, I'm not ancient of days, but I'm old, in my lifetime would have told me that people would seriously argue for euthanasia and abortion on demand for inconvenient people, I wouldn't have believed it. So these are conventions that change. So if we define people's value based on how they relate to our society or to me personally, nothing's safe. There are, there are no rights. But if we say the truth, which God is the center, Suddenly, their value has nothing to do with their utility to me or anyone else. Their value because God thinks they have worth. Now, the great, so, so we, uh, this is why, by the way, example, Voltaire, who was no fan of the Christian religion, famous but believed in God, said, you know, if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him. That says a lot, saying there is no possibility for human, you know, for human dignity apart from God. So this idea, we say the beginning of wisdom, you know, we say fear of the Lord, it's what the saints, there's a name of virtue called. The, the virtue is called humility. Humility is just having both feet on the ground and realizing God is the center and all of us, me and everyone else, all of us together have our meaning as we relate to God. And the God actually himself is our happiness. That relationship is where happiness lies. It's the queen of the virtues, humility. 
You know, it's, it's, the, no, it's recognizing our limitation in a beautiful way. As my dad, a blessed memory, used to say, son, let God be God. You know, just accept the fact, you know, you know, let God be God. That's the first step towards wisdom, fear of the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. That's why this passage is remarkably precious to the church, the passage we read today. You see, the scriptures teach us, and the old scriptures of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament teach us that God is not some blind force of nature. A lot of people say they believe in God, but it's sort of like the, the force, right? It's sort of like gravity. It's sort of out there, a philosophical principle to explain things, an unmoved mover. The, the scriptures teach that God has personality. He has intelligence. He cares. You know, God is involved. The great philosopher Pascal famously put it, he says, not the God of the philosophers, you know, principle, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who talks to people, you know, an actual personal God. We know that. However, we also know wisdom itself, wisdom is not a concept or an ideal, it's actually a person. The you know, book of Proverbs and what we saw today describes wisdom as God's eternal partner in creation. Look at the passage you have in your bulletin. It says, first of all, that wisdom was with God from the very beginning. There was never a time without wisdom. It was there from the very beginning. It says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Uh, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. But more than that, he is the one a person through whom everything was made. He says, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, then I was beside him like a master workman. Now we might think, well, isn't that just a metaphor? There are other metaphors. Oh, no. The Gospel of John tells us that this is, this is true. It's no metaphor. You know, we have, it's the second person of the Trinity. Look at the beginning of John's Gospel. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. So this wisdom is more than a concept. This wisdom is the person, the second person of the Trinity. And this is interesting. The fathers of the church wanted to distinguish between created wisdom and wisdom itself. Created wisdom is the fingerprints of God in the world. When we look at the world, we see his intelligence. We see God's fingerprints everywhere, so to speak. And we call it, in theology, it's called the general revelation. Paul explained this in Romans. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we can see God's reflection, his fingerprints in what we call created wisdom. But that's not the end. In Jesus Christ, we don't just see wisdom's reflection, created wisdom, we see wisdom itself, the eternally begotten Son of God. We don't see God's fingerprints, we see God's hand. You know, one of the church fathers described the, the Son and the Holy Spirit as the hands of God. 
You know, we see a, a person here. That's why in John's Gospel, he goes on, he said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father. Now, this is why Christians traditionally have called Jesus the wisdom of God, referring to this passage. Now, that's important. You might not realize this. And remember, in Istanbul in Turkey, the capital, uh, right at the capital, the largest city in Turkey, Istanbul, it used to be Constantinople uh, centuries ago. For many centuries, the largest Christian church in the whole world was there. It's called Hagia Sophia, which in Greek means what? Holy wisdom. It was a church dedicated to Christ. Christ is the holy wisdom, not some concept. Is Jesus the wisdom of God, the one through whom everything is created, the one whose mark is everywhere in the world? Now, wisdom then has its beginning in the fear of the Lord, but it only finds its completion in the love and knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the path to happiness. That's wisdom. Putting our, how do we align ourselves with God? We start down the path by letting God be God, accepting who he is, and then coming to the fullness of that revelation in his son, wisdom incarnate, Jesus Christ. Now, in conclusion, we said the deepest desire of the human heart is happiness. Happiness actually is something we only achieve in God. That is our, God is our happiness. It's easy to despair the possibility of being happy. It's under, understandable when we look at the world around us. But there's a profound reason for hope that we're told today. There is a sure path to happiness, wisdom. How do we start down the path? By taking God seriously, which means truly accepting the awesome reality that there is a God and living that way, living accordingly. And how do we arrive? That's the start of the path. How do we arrive at our destination? The full possession of wisdom. We do that when we meet wisdom incarnate in Jesus Christ. In the book of the Proverbs, it says, it uses the example of, it does use a metaphor of wisdom. It says it's like a woman standing beside the road, calling to people, inviting them to in, come into her dinner, to a, to a banquet. Right? That's the image. Wisdom invites people, come on in, come in, we're having dinner. Everyone, come in. Today, we're going to have wisdom itself, the real thing. Wisdom personified, the Lord Jesus Christ invites us to his table. We say, you know, Christ our Passover sacrifice for us. Let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. So let's pray for the grace to respond to that invitation, the invitation to embrace the wisdom of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.